You are listening to another DX Talk. Delivering vital knowledge that empowers leaders to drive transformational change in their businesses. Brought to you by Quantum, facilitators of future-focused operating models that balance people, processes, and technology towards a new way of working. Welcome to episode 11 of DX Talks. My name is Russell, and today we're talking with Ken Grow, who is the President and Chief Executive, sorry, Chief Revenue Officer for Weka IO, who promote themselves as having the fastest file system in the world for those who solve big problems. Our discussion today is around how businesses can trailblaze successful AI initiatives and the cost of data misuse. Data is not only a dependency for the application of AI, but the use of AI creates exponentially greater amounts of data. Businesses who want to digitally transform and create 21st century operating models will have to address what data they collect, how they clean it, how they store it, and how they access it. Wicker talks about this last point very nicely by saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, the rate of innovation and transformation necessarily be constrained for organizations who rely on legacy approaches to data storage and management. We have a quick message from Quanton and then we'll start our conversation. The way the world works is changing and organizations need to change with it. At Quantum, we transform your operating model to a new future-focused way of working by helping you build internal capability and find the sweet spots where automation can have the biggest impact on your business with quantifiable benefit. To find out more, visit quantin.co.nz. Let's get started. We're talking today with Ken Grow. Ken is a Silicon Valley veteran whose name is associated with a number of successful technology startups, and as I said, is the President and Chief Revenue Officer for Wicket.io. So Ken, welcome. Oh, thank you, Russell. I've been a longtime listener and fan of DX. I'm so happy that our schedules were able to collide for a few moments here, and I'm so happy to uh, talk with the listeners and hopefully add to their uh, quality of their day. Great, thank you. I think a, a good place to start for context is to talk about who WICA are and the role that you play in technology ecosystems for a business. Yeah, so what, what WECA is, and um, I, I've said this a few times, but I think it might be worthwhile. It, there's also a WECA bird that's a flightless bird in your part of the country as well, of the world as well. But uh, WECA uh, formally stands for WECA byte or 10 to the 30th power. It's all the amount of information you think you would ever be able to put in a file system. So thank you for the nice acknowledgement. We've universally been uh, regarded as the world's fastest file system. We tend to target people that solve big problems, whether it be COVID right now or other uh, major issues, whether it be uh, going through genomes to go through other major, uh, not really pandemic level, but other type of diseases, other type of things that gene sequencing can help, or even something as simple as making your life a little easier. Uh, have, have the ability to take your hand off a wheel while you drive down the road in an autonomous vehicle or go to a supermarket. I go to an Amazon Go, for example, that used to be a Whole Foods and walk out and not have to wait in line uh, and walk out your eight items for $70 and get them out of the way. But uh, what WECA is able to do is be the world's fastest file system, all the information you'd ever put in a single file system. And we'll probably get a chance to talk through it. We're going into voluminous amounts of data. Uh, we found out from an, an analyst, independent analyst recently, Russell, that of the eight, the globe's eight largest installations of data, 
WEC is in seven of those. Um, the, we would be in all eight, but one of them refused to answer. Uh, full disclosure, it was rumored to be the U.S. government. But in those other installations, it's not just the speed, it's the ease of management. So we're also addressing the ease of management and trying to do more with less, and especially during COVID times where people don't get uh, access to their facility or want to do more and more on their cloud. But we're able to actually give a tangible amount of human capital savings on just the ease of management to be able to tune to it. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to get into a little more detail on solving the problems or the problems we're able to solve. But uh, Russell, looking so forward to uh, convey this to your listeners. Uh, in a previous video I saw, you, you talked about the data triangle, which I think is a really great example of the role that you play inside an ecosystem. Do you want to give us an overview of that data triangle? Well, well thank you for listening to my prior uh, conversation. I've listened to a bunch of yours as well. Um, yeah, I believe, and a lot of people ask me this or ask other people, how do you get started with AI and how do you make it yield or how do you get a successful ROI out of it? Because you're still investing money and in COVID times, every dollar, never mind millions of dollars, has to be uh, frugally invested with a big ROI. I always say as president of my company, my job is to invest small bags of money to get bigger bags of money back as quickly as possible. So to answer your question, the triangle I envision, and I've actually worked with NVIDIA and some of our partners like HPE and Dell, Supermicro, Penguin Computer, uh, Attachment Tower, et cetera, and they've confirmed it. And actually, I was just profiled last week on HPE's uh, internal blog and external blog. They all envision the same thing. And if you go back to your geometry class, mine was everywhere from third grade to seventh grade in the United States here. But you imagine the equilibrium triangle. All corners should be the same angle. And let's say it's 180 degrees, so it's 60, 60, 60. All sides should be the same uh, length. To do that, you need a third equal parts of GPU or some type of acceleration. We tend to think it's GPU. NVIDIA is a very good one. There are other choices. You also need a very fast network. You, you know, some of our academic folks have invested in Finiban. Uh, on the commercial side, we're seeing our friends at Avista do 400 gigabytes. We support 200 gigabytes as well, and everyone's upgrading from 10 to 100 gigabytes. But you need a fast network because you, you need to build a process fast, Russell. Your, your people listening know that, and you know this certainly, but you need to be able to move the information through the bandwidth. Otherwise, you're like a very fast car stuck at a toll gate, unfortunately. And then the part that a lot of people miss, and until this conversation, people won't maybe grasp it, but you need a parallel file system. An example, one of the largest universities on the West Coast, uh, UCLA has shared with us that if you have fast throughput in the case of a GPU and a fast network, that's only part of the battle. You need a parallel file system. If not, you might have 200 or we have another uh, university on the other side of the coast that has 1,000 engineers and they're all waiting to use these very expensive cryo-EM microscopes where they're actually freezing what you're going through as a sample to go to the particles to get to the root cause of everything, whether it be uh, the next pandemic or another disease or whatever is necessary to actually put together cures. You need a parallel file system so that all 100 or 200 scientists can all work on the same activity at the same time. Sorry for the bad analogy. It's no different than working on a Google Doc versus you know, a flat file like a Microsoft Word document. You have to be able to collaborate and have 200 scientists all adding value at the same time because you don't want latency in the system. Same with one of the other universities. I think Oxford University over in London has the same issue. How do you get all the people that want to add value out of latency mode and into productivity mode? With a parallel file system, you get all the people using all the value. With the GPU on the front end, you get all the processing power. And with a network, you have no one left behind waiting for latency in the network. But if you can have all three of those in a perfect equilibrium triangle, that's how you get the best yield of an ROI of a project of AI as you come out of COVID or you need a competitive advantage. But very astute question, Russell. Thanks for listening to my past interviews. 
And I think that actually leads into a really interesting question, and you, you've already started to touch on that. Where do you see that AI could go, and how can it affect everyday life? Well, I'll give one. We're knee-deep, obviously, in COVID here. Can't wait to get to a vaccine, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, I'm sure. Let me give you a, a real-world example. Uh, some people might have driven to work today with an autonomous vehicle. I know there's a lot of uh, great brands out there. Elon Musk certainly has been innovative in one of those. And in those type of – we supply to those people, obviously, in the first movers for autonomous vehicles. I saw recently, for example, Fiat Dodge or Fiat Chrysler was going to come out with an uh, electric-powered truck, they announced, and it's going to be autonomous as well. So the ability that you – if you get back to a world where you're actually commuting to work, you know, the average commute is 28 minutes both ways. That's another hour of productivity to do what you want, talk to your loved ones, multitask, et cetera. But in your normal world, you might you have an autonomous vehicle or a semi-autonomous vehicle you drive to work. We also are first movers to autonomous fleet. We've armed uh, autonomous fleets. So in the case of trucking, literally think about the, the benefit of in a COVID world of many fleets all over the place. And then we also supply to a major air carrier. In full disclosure, it's not based in the United States. It's based overseas. And that particular air carrier actually does autonomous flying or flights. My point being is you'll see AI help other ways to make your life, in theory, more enjoyable in a better livelihood way, not even counting what we're trying to do as far as overall uh, cures to uh, awful diseases and other ailments that uh, plague the human race. Hope that helps, but uh, we're trying to give more smiles to people's lives, if that made sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's, if we come back to more specifically the role that Rico is playing and what you are starting to enable in that mix as well. Uh, let's talk about COVID, obviously that's really relevant right now. And if I jump back a couple of steps when you talked about the role you play, number one, you talked about scalability. It's around the application and the use of data at a scale we, we can't even imagine. Number two, you talked about removing latency. So it's about making it real time. And number three, you talked about enabling access on a large scale making it possible for a huge number of people or an unlimited number of people to work on the same problem. And I know that you've got some great examples around how your technology is enabling research on the possible vaccine for COVID. Well, well thank you for teeing that up for, yes, a couple public references, and we respect the fact that some of our references would rather say discreet. But in, when it comes to COVID, you need collaboration because this is a global pandemic. This is not a New Zealand pandemic or an Australian pandemic or an American pandemic, or even a Chinese pandemic. This is a global pandemic. So one of our first public references once we went to COVID is the Swiss Institute of Bioinformatics went public. And they created the most trusted geographical sharing algorithms and COVID genomes so that they could actually not just work on the vaccine, because that's very important, but they worked on um, actually COVID resiliency. Unfortunately, we all hear stories at night if you watch the news or you watch on your computer or you read about it. But unfortunately, I'm 53 years old. Um, I think I'm in pretty good shape, but I have not had COVID. I hope not to get COVID, but I'm not quite sure where the antibodies in my body, if I would take it, would, would, I, would I perish from COVID or would I only take it like a small fever for two days or would I be impaired for two or three weeks? The ability to be resilient for COVID is a big thing. And what the SIB or the Swiss Institute of Bioinformatics has provided a safe place to go through it. More specifically, the largest installation that deals with COVID resiliency is Genomics England. They really have 70 petabytes. Genomics England, right when COVID started, made a significant purchase with us because they only had 28 petabytes and it was all based on a prior product that was owned or still run by Dell called Isilon. 
great product, but could only scale to 28 petabytes and couldn't get above that. And who could have foresaw that COVID coming out and affecting everyone's life earlier part of this year? Well, they switched from their normal activities where they were going through it and started moving into COVID resiliency uh, at a pandemic level right away. They upgraded their 28 petabytes, which unfortunately for them at Genomics England took 10 storage administrators to administer. And that's a pretty good ratio actually on current terms. 28 petabytes, 10 storage administrators. They upgraded to Weka, put Weka in place. They are now enjoying 70 petabytes and they were able to repurpose nine and a half of those people that were storage administrators because the product self tunes itself. So Genomics England is able to focus on what's important is getting the world scientists to share and to collaborate on figuring out resiliency because when the vaccine is disseminated, we've got to find out what prioritization, who gets it first. If you're about to die, when do you get it? Or if you're in a situation where you need the most help, how do you get it? In the United States, it's which states get it first. You know, there'll be a lot of pol politicking in today's election day across the United States. So I'll bring that up. But there, there'll be some type of scientific facts based on the information you're using in genomic sequencing run by WECA, the world's fastest file system, but the easiest to manage to create better resiliency prioritizations so the countries can have better information to make better joy, joy of life decisions for their citizens of their different country. But thank you for teeing up for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's incredible hearing stories like this. Obviously, we're talking about the social welfare of the world. If I bring this back in a commercial sense for a second, I, I previously talked about you know, performance in terms of scalability, latency and access. But what you've talked about in that example, if I, if I give it a commercial spin, is you're talking about helping businesses achieve a greater level of resilience in their data operations. You're talking about helping businesses achieve efficiency, specifically from cost reduction. The, the example you mentioned there was approximately a 90% reduction in the human resources required to support traditional approaches to data. And you're enabling capability, which in theory links to more products and services or more productivity that, that organizations will deliver. Have I got that correct? Yes, I, I can tell, Russell, you're a data hog just like me. You, people buy off emotion, but they justify based on facts. Just two quick points of fact. Some of the larger global scientific uh, universities, they do genomes. You know, why would you not sequence genomes? And uh, in fact, here in Santa Cruz, the actual first genome browser was actually invented 20 years ago and actually given to the world, literally in Santa Cruz, California, given to the world. With that genome browser, and think about it, would the internet be really anything without Google or before that some of the prior systems like, yeah, you need a way to navigate that. So if you use the same analogy, the genome browser is a way along with the CRISPR to actually identify, you know, how to do the different genomes. Those who invest in Weka have been able to do upwards of 850 to up to 1,000 genomes per given hour versus uh, the former record was about 150. So that's around seven, and on the uppermost, 10 times more genomes per hour. And we all know this. The more experiments, the more variables, the better luck they have out there. There is a particular autonomous uh, vehicle company, Elon Musk is involved in, that they're training. And if you think about it, think about all the sensors that are in an autonomous car going up to a satellite and keeping it safe. And if we do our jobs right, who knows, J.D. Power might rate it the most uh, safe vehicle out there on the road. But the training time, the training modules and that whole exercise, it was taking upwards of two and a half weeks to get that done with the prior solution. They upgraded to the HPC power of Weka for speed, and they got it done in four hours. What does that mean? When you're in an autonomous driving vehicle, which everyone will eventually, 
But at some point you're driving down, even if you're using it for an Uber or a Lyft, when you drive in the road, it's taking in all the variables. It might be a skunk running in front of the, your right tire that you don't see because it's below the vision line. It might be a, uh, a yield sign that has not been posted by local authorities. It might be um, a slick part of the road or black ice that you don't see. You want those sensors to grab all the information, beam it at the speed of light back into your individual vehicle to make it the self safest environment for everybody out there. That's the power of the speed and scalability of Weka. And some of the customers, with all due respect, given keeping anonymous of who they are uh, for a competitive weapon, are using it every single day to make our lives better. I think you've made a really interesting point there, and I do really like that example. That the point I picked up on is that we're now you know, really effective technology is using the data that you're aware of and that you can see and that you can, you know, is within your field of perspective, as well as data that is not. And it's probably a bit like an iceberg where you understand or can comprehend 20% of what is being used, but it's pulling in and using and processing 80% of data that is outside your sphere of vision. And if I link this back to an old statistic, there's a report from Forrester which says 60 to 73% of all data within an enterprise goes unused for analytics. So I have two questions. That statistic is from 2016, so which is old now. Do you still believe that is true? And the second question is for organizations who have transformed their data capability, what journey did they go through? What did that look like for them? Okay, great, great, great questions. Yeah, so the first one, yeah, I saw that same Forrester study. I think Forbes actually picked it up. Uh, Kathy Ireland in a prior interview mentioned that as well. Yeah, it's between 60 and 70% of all data is not available to people who need to work on the analytics in the time that you actually can act upon it. That's, that's a complete shame. A tangible example is one of the universities before they invested in WECA. And it was, again, we're not talking hundreds of millions of dollars. They're just, you know, a few percentage points more than they would the normal way they're doing conventional IT. So no more than the same server you would have bought or the same network you bought. You just, no different than a few years ago, you might ask for Intel inside of your computer. If you just ask for WECA within, you can have that upgrade and have it available. What that allows you to do is that number will shrink. So the answer to the question, do I think that answer is correct as a beginning of 2020? Yes, Russell, I do. I do think it's between 60 and 70% of all corporate data is, goes unused or dormant in the time frame that the executives and the people that have the information are uh, not available to use it to act against it. So I do believe the Forrester findings from a few years ago, Forbes validated, Kathy Island's group uh, format as well. I think that number will shrink because now you have parallel file systems led by Weka. You have more GPUs. So the interest question specifically, why do I think the number will go down? Number one, some of the technology. Number two, at least in the States and actually overseas in, in Europe, especially in it, I haven't been to Australia, New Zealand lately because of COVID, but I think there's going to be a rise of a new position called a CDO, Chief data officer. And you've probably interviewed a few, and I was speaking at a few keynotes where uh, at ThoughtSpot where there was a chief data officer uh, symposium. Here's why I think it's important. I think the Fortune 2000 globally are taking or recruiting the best talent from academia or from the HPC land. Those people know Weka well. We even have a few people have tattoos in their left bicep, for example, who swear by Weka. We're a household name for them. But in the corporate world, we're not. So just like Fortune 2000, Global 2000 companies are grabbing these really expert, I'd call them data, ex, data experts, making them the chief data officer in the corporate world. They're bringing their biases of an HPC bias. They're bringing WECA there. 
those folks will go after that 70% of the data that's unused, put in a parallel file system so all scientists can use them all the time. So you're never waiting on sneaker net. Sneaker net, sorry, just a, a bad expression. You probably know what it is, Russell, very well. You don't want people bypassing their own network, saving things to a USB drive, and then moving the USB drive to another person's computer versus using the network because the bandwidth is so bad. So my point being is you'll see a race for talent at the larger universities and from corporate America trying to grab these subject matter experts at the large university. We're already in the middle of that right now because as we come out of COVID, if you're not winning with an AI-led initiative, you're losing to someone who is. So whatever brand you have, whatever company, whether you're a manufacturing or a service provider, you probably are not enjoying a market of one. If you are your monopoly and in certain parts of the world, the government will break you up. So if you're competing every day, Having an AI initiative or putting AI into your processes and automating as much as you can and using this incredible power of AI into your world, whether it be Amazon, Amazon Go, or autonomous vehicles, I mentioned some of those in the past, or flights, you have to use it to your better advantage. So I do think this will be one of the first times people hear about a chief data officer, but I know around 20 of them already, and 16 of those 20 of our customers already. So we've got to work on those other four, but very astute question, Russell. I think you had an interesting point there where you talked about the race for talent, and I believe it's generally regarded globally that there's a shortage of skills, a shortage of expertise, and a shortage of talent in the field of data. So with that in mind, for, for businesses who are choosing to start focusing on this journey, how would you suggest they approach developing uh, that capability internally and building that skill set? Uh, great, great question. What I would say is if you don't have the talent at your current company, and again, AI is not just for the Fortune 2000. It's a little bit easier because you can hire new people or redeploy new people, but any company can try to put AI into their process and you can experiment for it. You can go to Weka.io, our website, for example, and you can actually be, I think it's four clicks. I did it earlier today. You don't have to buy the infrastructure. You can leverage it out there. But once you have the modeling down, you figured out what your competitive edge is and what the data sets that will be comparable, you can actually put that in place. You're going to have to have a, uh, I would guess, an internal meeting to figure out what your competitive edge is and whether attacking your supply chain, your analytics, or taking some of that information that's trapped in, sorry, Oracle databases or, you know, other type of repositories or SharePoint repositories where not everyone can see it. If you bring it out and give it new air and nurture these new opportunities, I think everyone can put their advantage. There's a couple of things in there. And the first one, my observation of, of AI technologies in general is that the two, two of the major trends are democratization. And what I mean by democratization is technology is no longer just being accessible by highly skilled or highly technical people. They're becoming accessible for what an enterprise might call or a business might call a standard business person and, and and of course the accessibility that comes with that so it doesn't mitigate the need for people with high levels of skill and knowledge but businesses are and you've made this point businesses are actually able to get going to a degree with the people they have in their businesses who understand the data who understand the processes and who understand their businesses is that something a, a philosophy you share i think the key is ai is going to be not just for the big and mighty in, uh, I think there's a famous quote from one of my mentors, and I, I don't attribute to anybody if I misquote it, but it's not the big companies that eat the little, Russell, you know. It's the fast that eat the slow. So somewhere there's an executive at a company that's going to initiate some type of AI initiative that helps companies get faster 
or more importantly, easier for their customers to get the benefits of their products and in turn pay for their products. It's all AI led, but I think you have a very good finger on the pulse of what's morphing right in front of our eyes. But I do want to challenge people. If you're not working an AI initiative or you're not in the field of study that leads into leveraging data, your advantage, you'd be a competitive advantage. I think I mentioned at the top of the hour, but if you remember that even the word Google, you probably know this is actually a mispronunciation and misspelling of a word Google. Google is a future proof of Google byte. It's 10 to the hundredth power. And the reason why Larry and Surgeon and others named it Google or Google, as we call it, is easier to say, it's 10 to the hundredth power is all the information the world will ever experience. So they future proof themselves. And that's a big audacious thing, you know, 20 years ago when they invented the company and brought it to market. But that's the type of foresight you need. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting point. And you, you talked about fast, eat slow. The point that I've taken out of what you've said, AI capability has given people competitive advantage. And more importantly, it's removing the barriers for small businesses to directly compete with large competitors. If I start to wrap this up, if the knowledge that you've shared compels our audience to either assess their data capabilities or gives them a new desire to transform their data capability, what are the three pieces of advice you would give to people? Uh, three pieces of advice, uh, that's kind of easy. Uh, don't be intimidated to start small. What I would say is figure out what competitive data sets you want to point your AI initiative at. Number two, that would triangulate between GPU, network, and parallel file system. And then lastly, dream big. I would have an offsite, or at least we're all offsite now, I would have a cross-functional group where if you don't have the talent on the bench, look for the outside talent, look uh, youthful in the case of people graduating from college, the ideas are huge. Uh, most of the big uh, innovative companies started from below, the small guy or the young guy, the young girl or the small girl um, who went up the market and challenged conventional thoughts. Be the David, not the Goliath, and come from an academic. Come from, think grab from different academic pursuits and bring them in. You'd be surprised what they're able to do. So I would say grab from academic or people just out of college would be great. Try to triangulate across the three metrics so you have an ROI and don't be afraid to start small. And again, you could be a division of a company or a giant company, or you could be a startup. Please use that to your better advantage. Ken, this has been a great conversation. You've offered some great insights and we value the knowledge and experience you've shared. By wrapping up, uh, if anyone is interested in learning more, where can they find either yourself or Weka.io? Yeah, uh, Weka, www.weka.io. It again stands for 10 to the 30th power. I'm on LinkedIn. Please follow me there or uh, send me an email, growe, G-R-O-H-E, at weka.io. If you forget my last name spelling, it's the same as a German faucet company. To the best of my knowledge, I am not related to them, but we do have only growe faucets in our house. So happy to be on here, and I was smiling the entire time. You uh, did a lot of research, and you know exactly what we're trying to do to do the market, and hopefully uh, your listeners benefited from this. That's great. Uh, for our listeners, we will drop all of those links uh, and details into the show notes. You can find them there. And Ken, one last time, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. You are listening to another DX Talk, brought to you by Quantum, the future-focused pioneers for a new way of working. To drive change in your operating model through automation, or to subscribe for more episodes, visit quantum.co.nz.